On 89.9 The Light, you're in conversation with Clayton and it is wonderful to have the man behind the Centre for Optimism in the studio with us, Victor Purton. How are you, Victor? Oh, look, I am so well and a delight to be with you, Clayton. I'm, I'm just so pleased to be here. Now, I love that uh, you, you're a part of what this is. So maybe before we get stuck right into the details, uh, the 20-second summary of what the Centre for Optimism is. It's really quite simple. We ask people, what makes you optimistic? And we've now got 12,000 answers, and there's only about five or six that repeat themselves. So the 20 seconds is, yep, we're a group of people, 5,000 people in 62 countries, asking that question of people, what makes you optimistic? Yeah. So we're going to explore why it's important to ask that question. I suppose then what we can do with that question as well in a couple of minutes' time. Let's hear a bit more about your world and, and life. I know that you've covered everything from, you know, you know, being a, a lawyer for a long time to sitting on the board of, you know, the Yarra Valley Water or whatever it might be. I can't remember exactly which one it was. You've covered a whole host of various things. Um, so tell us a little bit of your journey and path that led you to saying, Optimism is actually really important. Can we dig a bit more into your past? Yeah, so it really goes back three generations. My um, grandparents were Lithuanian and Latvian. Um, My grandfather and grandmother, my father's side, had it very hard. My grandfather was tortured to death by Mm. the, what was the predecessor of the KGB. My grandmother to the Gulag for a dozen years. My other grandparents, refugees, along with their children. And so they came to Australia in 1950. You know, and, and Australia was the land of freedom. Um, it was my, you know, having grown up under Stalin and then Hitler, you know, this notion of free speech was just so important to them. Uh, and so, you know, we grow up, my mother was widowed when I was very young. Um, and again, so there she was working three jobs to look after kids. But the fantastic thing was that the people who supported her were the very Aussie neighbours. You know, we lived in Coburg. Um, you know, and if I got home from school early or whatever, it was our neighbours who looked after us. And then, you know, we, we were well educated um, and I became a barrister at the age of 24. Um, I loved doing law, uh, but then at the age of 28, um, politics called and I was elected to the seat of Doncaster, you know, which is not far from these studios. Yes. And 18 years rushed by, but it was the beginning of the internet um, I had the polit- first politician's website in the country. I did the World Bank's first uh, moderated talk. But then in 2006, I'd had enough of politics. It had become very negative, And the interaction between modern media and modern politicians meant that we were being too negative and not positive enough. So I retired in 2006. And then as luck would have it, the other side of politics, John Brumby asked me to become Commissioner to the Americas, promoting Melbourne and Victoria across North and South America. And everywhere I went, there was this positivity about Australia. They just loved us. And the chairman of Caterpillar said to me, you Aussies remind me of the Americans of 100 years ago. Nothing is impossible. And then after I finished that role, I became senior advisor to the G20 presidency, Remember, Australia was the president in 2014. And again, at that super elite level of presidents, prime ministers, finance ministers, it was this trust in us as Aussies. Then I came back to Melbourne um, for family reasons, and it was like I was on a different planet. The only people who didn't get how good Australians were were Australians themselves. 
and the language. You know, I mean, and you know, when you ask someone, how are you? Yeah. 60% of people say, not bad or not too bad. Yeah. And we're not even shocked by that. Yeah, yeah. So rather than complain about the complainers, I set up the Australian Leadership Project. Uh, and there we interviewed 2,500 people on the qualities of Australian leadership. And they won't surprise you, Clayton. Um, egalitarianism, self-effacing humour, we laugh at ourselves, and then plain speaking. And if we think about that, I mean, we could walk out of these studios and we'd find hundreds of people who match those qualities. So I was still bewildered. You know, two years of research and I still don't know why they're being so negative. And then I had the opportunity to be the final speaker at the Global Integrity Summit of 2017. And after three days of misery on corruption and prisoners of conscience and media freedom, my speech was entitled The Case for Optimism. Mm. And it lifted the room, 700 people. And Helen Clark, you know, the former New Zealand yes. Prime Minister and then head of the UNDP, said, Victor, turn that into a book. If you turn that into a book, I will endorse it. So I turned it into a book um, and she endorsed it. And that led to global speaking opportunities. Uh, Phoenix, Madrid. Wow. Um, and then in late 2019... Um, as a, a, a really funny conversation with a, a government minister who said, so, uh, I, I can't use their words on a Christian <laughs> channel, but what can the government do that Victor Purton himself can't do globally? And I thought, you're right. And that day was born the Centre for Optimism. And we've now grown through COVID yes. um, to f over 5,000 members in 63 countries, although we, I admit we only have three in the Congo and one in Bulgaria, yes. but they're very valued. Exactly right. I, I mean, fascinating aspect of, of, of the summary of what it is. Thank you so much for sharing, Victor, because I think it helps us understand um, your perspective. Because I would go, right, you, you've seen a whole lot of these places, um, and yet you also seem, in what you've been saying, to keep coming back to this idea of, of asking people. Um, my sense is, you know, you're probably a confident enough bloke to be able to say, I could say, I think we should do this and this and this. Um, but you don't. You keep coming back to saying, tell me what it is, tell me what it is, tell me what it is. Um, the value of asking the question, first of all, um, why are you so dedicated to asking people that question rather than trying to you know, read the tea leaves somewhere else? Or, or tell them why they should be optimistic. You see a lot of you know, the big figures in the world telling people they should be optimistic. And, you know, I mean, we discussed it before this, this conversation on air. You know, we've halved the malaria death rate this century. Yes. So every day, 1,000 children are surviving who would have died. Um, but that's not news. And, and in people's lives, they've got to live their own lives. You know, they have grief. You know, someone dies, someone close to them. They might have lost their job. COVID might be causing difficulties. Everyone has their own problems. And every, people's optimism comes from somewhere deep within. And so as we go around, and, and it varies from countries, it varies. And, and so I've asked the president of Taiwan. I've asked the prime minister of Papua New Guinea. I've asked women digging ditches in India. And so some of the things that make people optimistic are life experience, mm -hmm. you know, until you're in your 50s or 60s, you don't peak in optimism because you know that the tough stuff happens, but the sun still comes up in the morning. And then for many people, their optimism comes from faith. You know, it can be faith in God. And it's interesting when you ask the women digging ditches in India, yeah. it's very often, you know, my God. Yes. Um, so faith in God, faith in humanity, 
For some people, it's faith in science. And then for other people, particularly entrepreneurs and farmers, they often call themselves natural optimists or mindset optimists. And um, living life through the eyes of a child, oftentimes teachers will say, you know, I get my optimism through the, through the children I teach. And grandparents often talk about that. So bringing it back to what makes you optimistic and then asking other people what makes you optimistic lifts you. Yeah. And, and what the world needs now coming out of COVID is realistic and infectiously optimistic leaders. And so we do it with leaders. And, and our view is everyone's a leader. Yeah. And oftentimes when I'm giving speeches, even 600 people in Phoenix, I got them to stand up and shout out, the leader is the person in my mirror. So any of your listeners who've got a, a red lipstick or a texter uh, uh, near uh. them, I'd love you to graffiti the mirror at home or at work dare I say it, even a public uh, bathroom, <laughs> and on the mirror, the leader is the person in my mirror. Yeah. Um, I want to talk a bit more about that in a couple of moments' time. We're going to get to some songs and, and come back and talk about how we can actually play out optimism and why it's so important in this moment as we go forward. Before we do, a quick definition. Um, you've asked a whole lot of people, and I think part of the, the skill and the, the charm of a research project like that is to people can interpret their own sort of take on what optimism is. But you've read all these. You've talked to people about it. You've chatted to everybody about it. Do you have a definition that you can get closest to of what optimism actually is? Yes. Um, it actually goes back almost 750 years to an English Christian mystic, Mother Julian of Norwich, who famously said, all shall be well, all shall be well, all manner of things shall be well. And the Harvard... Oxford, American military use of optimism is a belief that good things will happen and that things will turn out in the end. But it's not that there's a silver lining in every dark cloud. Bad stuff happens. And, mm. and that's why optimism is the underpinning of resilience. You know, because it, you know that if you persist, things will work out in the end. And one of the little add-ons that, that a few of our members use is, um, you know, that optimism is a belief that good things ha will happen and that things will work out in the end. And if it hasn't worked out, it's not the end. Yes, I like that. Very good indeed. Victor Burton is the Chief Optimistic Officer. I've got the title right, Andrew, of the uh, Centre for Optimism. We're going to be back with him in a couple of minutes' time talking more about what does optimism mean as we are those leaders ourselves. How do we put that in practice? How do we step forward into the next phases of our world and uh, well, change the world for, for the better? because of our optimism. On the way next here on 89.9, The Light. In conversation with Clayton. On 89.9, The Light, you're in conversation with Clayton and uh, we best best title of anyone ever. Uh, Victor Purton is my guest, the Chief Optimism Officer at the Centre for Optimism. Uh, we've been hearing a bit of his story, but also the importance of optimism. We've got plenty more to go through. One thing that you did talk about your own life, Victor, is you've had the, the privilege and the opportunity to travel the world and to um, speak with a whole lot of leaders of, you know, prime ministers, presidents, whoever it might be around the world too. Just before we get back to, I suppose, how optimism can play out in my life, um, is there a type of leader that you have seen who is more optimistic around the world? Are, are there, there types of characters or are there locations around the world that uh, provide more optimism? I think national leaders and state leaders and leaders of large corporations tend to be optimists. Um, and 
McKinsey's head, Dominic Barton, put it really well to me because I was actually interviewing him about Australian leadership. And I said, what does it take to be a leader? And he said, every great leader I've ever met is infectiously optimistic, but it's not the big man or woman at the podium. It's the person who can unlock the optimism of the people in the organisation. And Bob Iger, who people would know, restored the fortunes of Disney. In his book on leadership, which he published last year, he had 10 features of contemporary leadership. I mean, you won't need to guess what was number one. Realistic and infectiously optimistic leadership. And I'm sure some of your listeners are snorers. You know, they might have a ResMed machine. Well, Mick Farrell, the, the head of ResMed, said you've got to be an optimist to run a company like this. But it's an optimism rooted in good strategy, good business plans, and, you know, the, something's gone wrong. But I think about, uh, I had the, the privilege of meeting Bill Clinton, you know, and I was in a small dinner, 12 people, and he heard my Australian accent. And he regaled them with stories of his joy in Australia. So not only did he enchant them, but I felt yes. like a million dollars. Um, and, and even, you know, tough leaders, you know, in South Africa at the moment, Jacob Zuma is being threatened with jail. Mm. But I had to escort him um, to an event. And again, even though, you know, a tough ex-gorilla, but he looks you in the eyes and he asks you about your life. And I think probably I have a great friend called John Hagel, who's just written a new book called The Journey Beyond Fear. And, and he describes it as the passion of the explorer. So a good leader is exactly as you are, Clayton. Mm. They actually ask really interesting questions of the people they meet, and they make those people feel like a million dollars. I mean, just imagine when you meet the Queen. She looks you in the eye for a minute or two, but you remember it for the rest yeah. of your life. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I'm fascinated about too is this concept of optimism being... Uh, okay, as we sort of said before, facing the reality of where we are, but knowing that we're going to get through or, or we're going to make it through. There is this sort of understood and expected sort of take of the knowledge of that. How, how, how does it become something that we can trust versus something that's just a bit pie in the sky? And well, actually, this is just always going to stay terrible. Um, how do we balance that out? How do we make optimism really sing and live rather than us just pretending we're believing in fairy tales? Well, there's sort of three elements to that. I mean, the first one is to be well-read, but that's actually re very difficult because the news media is focused on the negative. It's focused on events. You know, it's not the fault of the journalists that they're constantly reporting bad news. It's the sort of yes. alertness. So you have to be well-read. But, but we actually teach some habits of optimism. So we actually say, listen to the news less. You still have to stay in touch. But if you know that the news is 95% negative, 15 minutes in the morning, 15 minutes in the evening is enough. Yeah. And then habits like things you're doing today. So one of the habits that's been most successful, we tested in prison, uh, and it was so successful we were asked to do training for prison warders. As a result, so getting rid of the question, how are you? Yep. So in Australia, if you say, g'day, how are you? 60% of people, and it doesn't matter whether they've lived here all their lives or they're refugees, they will say not bad or not too bad. It's a wasted question and a wasted answer. So I challenge your listeners for the rest of today or the rest of the week to replace that with, 
what's the best thing happening? Whatever comes natural to them. So, g'day Clayton, what's the best thing happening? Or, what's the best thing in your day? Or, maybe on Friday you'd say, what's the best thing um, in your week? And I did it in the supermarket the other day. I was talking to the checkout lady and I said, look, just let's try it on the next two people behind us. And there was a mother and a, a girl about 12 and we said, what's the best thing in your day? And the girl lit up and she said, oh, I got the results of my test today. And there was a whole positive conversation. So your listeners will find if they ask that question, 80% of the time they will get a story, mm. a story of hope and, and optimism. And, and the reverse of that, if they actually like doing that, then when people say, how are you? Instead of saying good, terrific, or whatever, which in Australia often doesn't sound authentic, just try and tell a little story. Like, oh, I was listening to the radio today and it was really good, or my kids made dinner for me. So the number one habit we'd say is eliciting positive stories from everyone you meet. And then the second habit that has been hard-wearing masks um, is smiling at strangers and smiling at people at home. And I, I did a training session for a company recently, and um, the feedback I got was that the CEO realised that he hadn't been smiling at his kids because he'd been under stress. Yeah, yeah. You know, COVID, lockdown. Yeah. Anyway, he started smiling at his kids, and by day two they said, will you get rid of that Victor Perton <laughs> smile? We're sick of it. But so we love that greeting stuff. Yes. Uh, and then a third one that people could really try and on our website, you just um, Google My Best Self. Um, it's a really interesting exercise where you take a piece of paper and spend five minutes imagining yourself in a year's time or five years' time, everything going right in your life. And then spend 10 minutes writing. Best to do it in handwriting. Mm-hmm. What a day in your life looks like on then. And then go for a walk. Have a cup of tea. Meditate on it. But the science says Vienna Medical School... Uh, Suffolk University and others have been doing mass experiments on this, that my best self is even used by the American military now. So those are three little habitual things. I mean, we've got, if people want to do have some fun, um, we actually, during the English lockdown, we built a thing called the Habits of an Optimist, uh, which is animated, includes the, the Australian Boys Choir and the like. And it takes about an hour, um, or it could take a lifetime. So those are the things we suggest... Um, And then the other thing is, you know, thinking about how is the world improving? Um, And there's some really good books on that. There's a a, a guy called Rosling um, who wrote a book called Factfulness. Um, Really good reading because he doesn't shove anything down your throat, but but he helps you map the world. And his kids have kept up a website. Um, And there's a, a, a thing called World in Data. Um, coming out of Oxford that's worthwhile. And then for people who like reading something really quite deep in Western culture, um, Steve Pinker, the head of psychology at Harvard, wrote a really good book called The Enlightenment, uh, which again shows that we've really progressed. I mean, if people talk about the good old days, yes. yeah. I mean, if you go back 100 years in Melbourne, you know, one in five kids was dying before the age of five. Yeah. Roughly the same number of women were dying in childbirth. So, so the good old days, I don't think people have ever lived better yeah. than the people of Australia today. Look, I know a couple of my mates who are you know, far, far smarter than I ever are and have done a whole lot of studies and all sorts of things have said to me for years uh, constantly that, hey, um, our culture says it's the worst. We're living in the best time in history, like bar none. It, it's just that the way we're looking at it 
is where it is that's the the, the issue, which is exactly what you're saying too. Um, you, you mentioned sort of some of those health benefits as well, but just before we wrap up, are there any other health benefits? Because I'm guessing there's a fair few by being optimistic. Well, number one is is that it is the single trait that most predicts you're going to live to a healthy old age. Mm. Um, Harvard, um, the American Heart Association, and in fact, I've even been asked to speak to a group of cardiologists on using optimism in treatment. So on the health side, it's one, but my favourite study is one that comes out of the University of Michigan, um, which talks about an optimistic spouse or partner. And uh, those who have an optimistic spouse or partner have the same health benefits as being optimistic yourself. So those of you who are listening, if you've got an optimistic spouse or partner, you've hit the jackpot. (laughs) If you don't have an optimistic spouse or partner, use some of those little habits I've suggested or try the habits of an optimist. And listen to to the light um, every day to get some inspiration. And then the third trick is if you're single, incorporate our question what makes you optimistic in that first date and if they can't tell you what makes you optimistic the first date's the last date wait till you find someone who listens to the light fm and can answer the question what makes you optimistic isn't that a great idea i love that imagine if that was happening that would be awesome if every first date from now on had that into it well i got a funny email the other day from a lady who's just opened a new dating agency in brighton she wasn't trying to recruit me as a client she was just announcing and i said well, make sure that one of the questions when you're interviewing your clients is, what makes you optimistic? She said, spot on, you're right. Isn't that great, hey? Um, so, you know, we've talked a whole lot about what we can do and, and how we can do it. Um, your best sort of takeaway, you know, you, you've got 30 seconds with us here now, Victor, as we, we finish up. We, we've got this moment saying, all right, I do want to be optimistic. I want to make sure that I, I, I do that. I want to do that in my world. I want to do it for my family, my kids, my, my community. Uh, we've talked about, you know, let's ask that question, some of those other things. Is there a, a, a pattern I need to do? Is there something I need to be focusing on afresh as I go forward? Is there something I need to add to the daily routine? You know, you've got a couple more seconds. What would you want to encourage and challenge us with, I suppose? I think if, if you're in a meeting, you know, if you're the chairman of the board or, you know, um, you're the secretary of a committee or the like, once every three months... The first question at the committee meeting is what makes you optimistic? And it's a really powerful thing. So oftentimes on boards here, people get asked what's keeping you awake at night? Of course, I sleep really well because I'm an optimist. (laughs) Um, So asking that question, but but giving people preparation and not expecting them to talk about work. So I'm going to take 10 seconds longer because I did an event the other day for a really big company. And the briefing was that no one wanted to come back to the office after COVID and a bunch of deadheads and the like. And we went round the group asking what makes you optimistic. And it got more and more joyful until we got to the woman who said, oh, my garden and my pets. And I said, well, what are your pets? And she said, a dachshund, a canary and a rabbit. I said, oh, does your rabbit come in too? She said, oh, does your rabbit watch television as well? Now, because everyone roared with laughter, but there is a conversation people have because she doesn't get her optimism by writing a better policy paper or the like. She gets her optimism from the garden and the pets and she's infectious. Yeah. And so if you do that regularly, whether it's around the, the family dinner table, whether it's around the board meeting, it's really powerful. The other one, of course, you know, obviously prayer is important and um, meditation. Um, And one thing you can do at the end of the day, at dinner, and and my kids know that it's expected, 
we always do what are the three best things in the day. Yeah, it's good. And yeah, the bad things will come out because bad things always come out. But getting people to think about the three best things in the day. It's a very powerful way to end the day. Yeah, it's great. Um, I think I did say final question, but now an actual final question, Victor, too. I'm fascinated also by the Centre for, for Optimism. What's your win? So um, is there a win for the, the organisation as a whole? Um, when do you know, right, we've achieved what we want to achieve. We, we know this is the aim. How, how do you measure that? I think it will just keep going. My, my mother died in October. And, you know, she'd supported me through being a politician and a barrister. And not long before she died, she said, this is the most important thing you've ever done. Mm. So, yeah, I, I was talking to, to a senior public servant the other day, and he summarized it. He said, look, you've been talking to presidents. You've been talking to villagers. You've been talking to prisoners. So I don't think there is an end point. So for me, I'm 62. My mother is my model. She worked till she was 92. So for me, it will be ongoing, 30 years, and you know whether a million people end up benefiting or a billion people end up benefiting, it's constant experimentation. I mean, you, you work in transformation. And as you know, you can't innovate unless you're an optimist. Yeah. And so for me, it's constantly experimenting with what we're doing, making it better. And yeah, we did some stuff the other day for University College Dublin. So their entire alumni group globally. Well, we were then asked to do a project in Washington, D.C. So I don't know where yeah, it will great. go. Um, for us, it's, it's getting up every day and just asking new people what makes you optimistic. So before we go, Clayton, what makes you optimistic? I am thoroughly optimistic about the fact that uh, people can impact people. That's the thing that just people, even this morning, somebody said to me, Clayton, you light up when uh, you realize that uh, people can have an influence on other people's lives for the positive. So that's actually the thing that gets me optimistic and hopefully make sure I do it with my kids and family, but anyone I walk through life in as well. Um, and especially before mass, my aim was just to get everyone I walk past to smile. So, you know, that's that's part of what makes me optimistic. You'll, you'll like this little story. We had a, an artist from Sydney called George Hall and he'd been, he, he said on air with us that he'd suffered this dreadful drug addiction you know, he was near death, but he recovered. And he's walking through King's Cross and people are smiling at him. And being a typical bloke, he's worried about, is his fly <laughs> yeah, undone that's, or that's spaghetti on the shirt? Things, right. And he realised he was smiling at them and he had created a community in King's Cross mm. of people who smiled back. And that is yeah. so simple, but just like you, yeah. so powerful. Yeah, it's great. Victor Pertinent, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it and wish you all the best. And thank you for the inspiration for us as well. Clayton, thank you for the work you do. As you know, I listen. Uh, I just, I think what you are doing is absolutely fantastic. And it's exactly what the people of Melbourne and the world need. Infectiously optimistic leadership, infectiously optimistic music. Wonderful. Victor Burton from the Centre for Optimism here on 89.9 The Light.